Well, let's go to Romans chapter 8. We're in our study that will take us just about uh, every Sunday this year to go through. There are 39 verses. We're on our fourth sermon, and we're only in verse 3. So, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, is where we are going to spend our time. Our topic is the security of the believer. And I hope that every week we approach this passage, and I hope that you're reading it at home too, uh, that it just thrills your heart to see how much the Lord loves you. This passage just says it in every single word. And as we go through that, I, I want, if there's nothing else we could accomplish in our study through Romans chapter 8, is to convince you that the Lord is for you. And that he's at work in you. And that he has plans for you that include eternity. And that will not change. And I want you to know that. Because it's not based on you and it's not based on me. It's based on what he has done. And this passage today, verse 3, is going to solidify that in our minds once more. Because we're looking at a passage that deals with the security we have... From the past, the first four verses deal that way. The security we have from the past, primarily, we're free from judgment and the condemnation that we read of here. So I'm starting in Romans 8, 1. I'm going to read 1, 2, and 3. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we will go into this wonderful passage. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Heavenly Father, we need your work in our hearts right now. As our teacher, thank you for the Holy Spirit who does that very thing today. We also need, Lord, for our faith to be strengthened, for our understanding to be enhanced, for our love to grow. All of these things directed to you today. And so as children, we sit at your feet. We ask you as our Heavenly Father to use this time right now in our lives to make us different than what we were when we entered this building. Different, because we have spent this time with you. So do your great work in each of us as we study this text. Help us to grasp it better, that we might live better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, this passage, I, I really am very excited about this verse. Uh, spending time this week looking at it, thinking about it, uh, preparing it for what I'd like to share with you today has just excited me a great deal. We are on a communion Sunday, and as you know, it's been my practice for all these years already to work the sermon right to the theme that we're about to partake in in the communion service. And this verse does it. I didn't have to modify and go someplace else. This verse hits the spot uh, concerning what we focus on today. We are to remember that Christ died on our behalf. That's what he told his disciples. Remember. <laughs> it's just remarkable to 
the idea that we would possibly forget. But he did tell them, tell them to remember, to remember. And we do that today, that he died on our behalf. He died because of our sin. Um, that's really fundamental. That is an indispensable doctrine uh, that brings you and me forgiveness. There is no way we could have atoned for our own sin. No way we could have done a thing about it. Scripture makes it very clear we needed the atonement, for we are all sinners. And if I just spent time this morning in Colossians, and I'll just read to you a couple of verses out of Colossians. Uh, you could check those if you'd like. You could read along if you want. If you just want to mark them in your notes and listen carefully. These are the words that Paul wrote. He says, giving thanks to the Father, Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance in the saints of light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then by the time you reach verse 19 of Colossians 1, he says, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him, that is Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on the earth or things in the heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Do you realize that's going to be true? You shall stand before the Lord holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Why? Because of great things we've done? No. No, because he goes on to say in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 13, and when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death, debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Great verses. Do you like them? Now, that's just Colossians, the first two chapters. I, I could spend the whole morning going through one epistle after the other, saying the same thing. Christ died for us. Christ died for our sins. That's an essential doctrine in Scripture. And we don't minimize that. We cannot minimize that. We do not want to minimize the results that come from His death. The Bible says that our sins are forgiven. It says they are forgiven. Do you believe that? Not based on you. Not based on me. Not based on what we have or have not done. But based on Christ. His death. Alone. That's it. We don't add to that. We don't subtract from that. And you may say, well, how would we subtract from that? Let me ask you this. Maybe you're a subtractor and you don't know it. 
minimizing its scope subtracts from that. Minimizing its power subtracts from that. Giving it limitations that somehow suggest that God can only forgive certain sins, but not all sins. You're a subtractor. God is evaluating my sins on some merit system. You know, some sins are not so bad. Some sins are, are worse than others. There are lies and there's little white lies. There are sins in the act that are worse than sins in the mind. God forgives according to the opinions of who you are. Some days, He doesn't seem to like you very much. Now, anytime you walk down those roads, you're a subtractor. Because you're minimizing what God has done. You're giving Him less of an opinion of what He has done. Sometimes you carry your guilt. Oh, you've taken it to the cross how many times? Twelve, thirteen, maybe two or three years. And each time you brought it there, you said, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Then you pick it back up and you walk off with it again. You've minimized. You're a subtractor. You're not convinced that he has really said this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All? Is that what it said? Is that what he meant? Yes. Now, I believe he meant all when I read those words. And that's why I started the way I did this morning. I don't intend to subtract one thing from what he has said. Not one thing from what he has said. And when we approach this text here today, we're studying how secure we are from the past. And I'm emphasizing this. I'm not going to keep emphasizing this. If it's not in Christ Jesus, it doesn't count for anything. That's what the first four verses of Romans tells us. This is what He has done for us. We can rest in it. We can rest in it. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? No condemnation. Hear it? No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he says in verse number 2, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. It set you free. See, the law of sin and the law of death cannot claim you. It cannot. He set you free from the law of sin and from the law of death. We are set free in Christ Jesus. Believe it. Don't minimize that. Why? Well, verse 3 answers that. Paul's just doing a bunch of whys in between every verse. You could almost read it right in the middle there. He says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, 
Let me give you a phrase, because we've been working on this. And last week we saw the law of sin and the law of death cannot claim you. Today we see the law cannot save you. The law cannot save you. Why? Well, verse number 4 next week will tell you the law can't even control you. (laughs) But we're going to talk about that next week. I'll keep you hanging on that. One commentary wrote that the law cannot condemn you. The law cannot condemn you. And in reality, it sounds nice. And maybe on this side of the cross we could appreciate that, that there is no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. But certainly the law condemns. That's its power, isn't it? It it shows us where we are wrong, and it shows us the consequence for that wrong. That's called condemnation. But when I look at these verses, especially verse number 3, I can't help but say it. The law cannot help you. The law cannot help you. This sounds fascinating, but look at it. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. It could not do something? Do you know last week when we looked at the law, we talked about it being perfect, didn't we? We did. You want to hear that one again? The law is perfect. God designed it so. We saw the words. The law is good. The law is spiritual. The law is holy. That's all chapter 7 of Romans. We saw those things about God's law. Who designed it? God did. And it's glorious. It was given with glory. It's a glorious thing. It's a perfect thing. There is nothing wrong with the law. God designed it. Matter of fact, Jesus didn't come to abolish it either, did he? He came to fulfill it. So when we study the law, we treat it like it's it's our enemy. It's our enemy because, well, we smacked into it. Many years ago, my dad had a garage down on the side of the, the yard there. He, he changed motors out of cars and fixed cars, all kinds of things in there. That's also where the air compressor was for our bicycle tires. And, and uh, so it was very common for us to go open up the side door, walk through the garage, open the big door, Turn on the air conditioner, or the, not the air, the air compressor, fill up our bike tires, and off we go. And we were so used to doing that without even turning on the lights. But do you know what it's like to kick a motor block in the dark? You don't see it, and you come around there and just, you know, motors don't move. Toes break. Motors don't move. The motor was not the enemy. It was big, and it did not move. And really, in that sense, if anyone's going to kick it, it did its job. It would break your toe. And I know that story. Personal one. The law does not move. It's perfect. We run smack into it with our sin. And then we call it the enemy. You want another approach to this? I put it this way. Point number one. Don't blame the law. Verse number three, I would put that in big print. Don't blame the law. Because when you read this, you say, but it can't do something. Yes, that's what it says. But why? It's in the passage. Why can it not do something? Because it says, 
what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. All right, stand up and realize it's us that made the mess, not the law. All right, you ready? Here we go. This is fun. What was so impossible? It could not do it. The fulfillment of what the law was designed to do. In verse number 4, the requirements of the law. What are the requirements of the law? That we be spiritual. That's the requirement of the law. That we be spiritual. That we live up to what God has made us to be. But the law cannot make you spiritual. It cannot make you spiritual. Oh, I know a lot of people who wear it and act like they're spiritual. But it cannot make you spiritual. One commentary put it this way. Uh, the law could not make its subjects live after the Spirit. This was beyond its power. It was never within its scope. It had to prescribe duty, not to supply motive. The law is the moral code. It inseparably connects with sin and death and its effect on the fallen man. When it says it's impossible, the law cannot produce the holiness of the soul. It cannot do it. Why? Because it has to work through our flesh. Let me give you a couple of ideas that might help with this. Say that you were in the hospital with some terrible, terrible disease. And the medical staff says, okay, we're going to help you. We've got this perfect potion that will solve your problem. And they walk into your room with this bowl of this potion and how they administer it. You can use your own imagination. But they go ahead and they give you this potion. And then they walk out and they're looking in the bowl and they say, I don't know what disease you have, but you just ruined my potion. You see a picture there? There's all kinds of concepts that could be related to this. Say that you had to paint this wall and this wall was completely black. And somebody says, paint it white. So you start painting with your brush with white paint. And the more you paint it, the more black it gets. What's wrong with the paint? We have all kinds of interesting ideas where what we think, applying the best thing to it, is going to solve it, and yet the application doesn't work. Here's an easier one for you. Go outside this afternoon, get a bowl, fill it with mud. Do you have any of that? This is a nice little bowl of mud. Fix it. Put a cup of sugar in it and stir it up. What are you going to get? A, a little sweetened, maybe, but it's still going to look like mud. Take the perfect law of the Lord and see a sinful man completely depraved in all manner and say, okay, I'm going to apply this perfect law to him and now he's going to be perfect. The law couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. It was incapable of doing that job. That's what Scripture is telling us here. It wasn't designed for that. It doesn't clean you. It condemns you. See? 
it cannot clean you. The flesh. Oh, I, I'd like to say it just simply. We messed it all up. The law was perfect in every single way. The blame is on the subject that it has to deal with. Not with the law. But the law has a impossibility attached to it. An impossibility. It could not work through the flesh. It could not remedy. It could not rescue. It could not redeem. It could not bring glory to God through our flesh. It could not do that. Though it was perfect, it could not make us perfect. It was made to reveal sin. It was made to enact punishment. It was never to give the cure. It's impossible. That's what he starts with here. The impossibility of the law wherein it is helpless through your flesh and through my flesh. It is helpless. It has no strength. That's the Greek word. No strength. He's not saying a little bit of strength. He's, he's not saying that it, it could, you know, at least kind of turn the motor a little bit. It may not start it, but you can hear that. It can't even do that. No strength. Helpless is a good word. It was helpless. Helpless. Now, at this point, you're saying, well, this is not a great way to start. Because if that's where the verse ended, we'd have no hope, would we? We'd have no hope. We would never know forgiveness if it was based on the law. If that were the end, if that were the end, we would only see so clearly what Scripture has said all the way along. We're not saved on the basis of what we can do. We're not saved on the basis of ourselves. It's not by our works. It's not something we could boast of. We can't do it. And then to pull out the law and say, now I've got my answer, as the old Pharisee used to do, and parade around with that little box on his forehead and make sure you knew that he was following the law. Paul knew that route. He knew that route, inside and out. He would even tell you in Philippians 3, as to the law, I was blameless. But you know what he found out? It couldn't save him. It could not save him. That's exactly what he's saying here in Romans 8, verse 3. The law couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. Now, believe it or not, that is a foundational fact for your security in Christ. It has to be. Because if you're depending on anything else for your secure relationship with God, it won't work. If you're counting on you, or you've been very good with the Ten Commandments, or you start your list of things you do, you're going to find out it won't work. Your security with, with God is based on Christ. Now, that's why we have to set up this picture for you, to understand that the law will not help you. It cannot help you. It leaves you in a spot where you have to depend on somebody else to do it. And that's exactly where the passage takes us. All of these points come to this, and, it, and it's necessary. 
God does what the law cannot do. God did it. I could simply say God saved you, right? It's that simple. But what this text specifically says is this. This is great. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, that's the way the New American Standard reads, and I like that. That did's in italics. They add it there. That's kind of like, hey, listen, God did it. It's true. But what did God do? God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, this is what He did. Ready? He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. God, by sending His own Son in the likeness of the flesh, condemned sin in the flesh. This is where your soul finds its security. God condemned sin. He did not condemn you. You see the difference? He condemned sin in the flesh so that He could save you. Condemning us would have been easy. But he had to deal with the flesh. He had to deal with the sin. The security of our past is set in Jesus' death. Not in what you or I did. The text says it so clear, doesn't it? Jesus came as an offering for sin. An offering for sin. He took our place. You see why he had to come in the flesh? That's where the problem was. That's exactly where the problem was. His death, he had to come to where the problem was. So, let's walk through a couple of things and then I want to spell them out. God condemned sin. The security that you have from your past is based in Jesus Christ's death. It is as secure as having been received by God as an offering. Did he receive, like an offering, that which his son had done? Was God pleased? Was God satisfied? Yes, he was. Jesus Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus Christ did not come sinful. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful. He wore our flesh. And yet, in that very act, the victory He won over sin was in its own stronghold. The flesh. Jesus, because He's willing to give Himself as an offering for our sins, His Father, our God, condemned sin in the flesh. He did that. He did that. Schofield puts in his study notes, some of you carry a Schofield study Bible, he showed that sin has no right to be in us. I kind of like the way that says it. Sin has no right to be in us. You see, back in Isaiah, God made this very clear when he prophesied concerning the death of Christ that his wrath would be satisfied. And it would not be needed again. For in Isaiah 53.10, it says, The Lord was 
pleased to crush him. That phrase has always stopped me in my tracks. The Lord was pleased to crush him. He was satisfied with inflicting all of our sin and the consequence of that sin upon his son. God put him to grief. And if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his day, and the good pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hands. A simple way to say God was pleased with the sacrifice. God was pleased with what Christ has done. Now, if, if that is true, and I believe it with all my heart, if that is true, that God is satisfied with Christ's death on behalf of my sin, for me to believe that there is sin that God cannot take care of would minimize the death of Christ. And it would say that God was not completely satisfied. There is something undone. Now, is that the kind of death you want to believe in? Is that the kind of Christ you want to believe in? I don't think so. God was satisfied. Why aren't we? Why aren't we? Why do we carry him around still? If he's already paid for him. Jesus died once for all. I love that song, Drew. I love that song. Here's the verses. Hebrews 7, verse 17. This is attested of him, speaking of Christ. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a fascinating topic. We'll get there someday. But on the one hand, there was a setting aside of former commandments because of the weakness, its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Are you surprised? That's what it says. The law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Hebrews 7.21 For they indeed became priests without an oath. He was with an oath through the one who said, He has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's from Psalm 110, by the way. A thousand years later, God is applying it to Jesus Christ. A thousand years later. This is what he says. In Hebrews 7.22 So much, the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, okay, brace yourself. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Your salvation is not based on you. It's based on him who lives forever. And the day he dies, you're doomed. Is he going to? No. That's the point. It is fitting for us to have such a high priest, the writer keeps saying, who is holy, who's innocent, who's undefiled, who's separated from sinners, who's exalted in the heavens. He doesn't need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, 
For the word of an oath which came after the law appoints a son who is made perfect forever. This is a powerful little section and I, it's one that demands a lot more attention. But it's a simple statement. He did it once for all. For all. For all. For all. It's done. Okay? It's done. The things that he dealt with concerning sin are done. They're done. Now you could choose this morning. How do you want to do, approach your sin? You want to try the law again? Go ahead. Kick your foot against that block. You going to succeed? No. Because the law cannot make you perfect. It's impossible. And yet you're not without hope, are you? Because you've just heard the words. What the law could not do, God did. God did. The whole time I've been talking to you, I've been focusing on what this reminds us of. What God did. He gave His Son. He gave His Son as an offering for us. God gave His Son for our forgiveness. God gave His Son that we might believe and have eternal life. We're sure of those things. We've read of those things. We know they're true. Are they completely true? Yes. Is there, is there any weakness in the gospel that we're holding to today? Is there any, any loopholes in the midst of this that somehow you're going to have to find your own way to figure out that sin or this sin or how am I going to be set free from that or this or how am I going to have hope in this area or that area? Is there anything like that you're still struggling with? Because so many of us do. So many of us do. You say, Lord, I know that you love me, but... You ever use that word? I want to just convince you of something here today. Just to convince you. If I, if I can say it, and I don't even... I, I've probably said it a thousand times. For sin has been dealt with at a cross. We must believe that. We must believe that. That's where our victory lies for everyday life. Some people just need to go and memorize Romans 6. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been buried with Christ. You have been resurrected with Christ. Don't go on living like you're not. Don't go on living like you're not. You've been set free from those things. We have forgiveness. And it's not partial. It's complete. It's all. So check a few things as we approach this table today. Check your attitude. Check your attitude. Because here's what I, I, I think can happen. And it sounds really strange, but some of you might understand it very well. When we, when we have issues and we think that there's something unforgiven, and we build an attitude with that sometimes. Almost like a pride. Maybe it is a pride that we have something. 
that maybe God can't handle. Sometimes there's an attitude in our own hearts. I want you to check an attitude this morning as you think about what Christ has done. Are you sporting a little attitude in there, something you're doing, you think, hey, I'm getting away with this, or you're thinking, well, God can't do a thing about it. Somewhere in there, there's pride. I want to ask you this, too, while you're checking the attitude. When's the last time you told him thank you? Oh, we said it in a song this morning. Was that from your heart, or was that just because Steve was leading a song that says, thank you for the cross, thank you for the cross? Did you mean it? When's the last time you stopped and said, thank you, Lord, for what you've done? I've said it a lot, but Christians ought to be the most thankful people on this planet. I want to ask you if you're relieved this morning. After hearing words like these, you, you approach this uh, table here, you take up the bread, you take up the drink, and you realize this has been done for me and I've been completely forgiven. Lord, thank you. What relief. I want to ask you about your joy. I want to ask you the joy level you've got today. <coughs> There's all kinds of things that can be easily applied here. But Scripture said this, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I think sometimes we're a little bit shy of just simply saying, Thank you, or Amen. This is what he's done. This is what he's done. We're going to take the time at this table today to remember what Christ has done. A body broken, blood that was shed for us. And he said it every time, for you, I do this. This cup is for you. This bread is for you. I want you to take that personally this morning as we partake together. But I'm going to read a passage to you, a little bit extended, but I want you to listen carefully. Even though you've heard it, I want you to listen carefully. It comes from John Chapter number 19. And I'll read it and then I'll have the men come up here and help me. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And gave him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. 
So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, which in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answers, We have no king but Caesar! So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, that is, in the Hebrew, Golgotha. And they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate says, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts. Part of it part to each soldier and also the tunic now the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece so they said to one another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be this was to fulfill the scripture they divided my outer garments among them and my clothing they cast lots therefore the soldiers did these things but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene and Jesus, when he saw his mother and his disciples, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After these things, Jesus, knowing that all these things have already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was standing there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. He did that for you. Didn't he? He did that for you. So that you would be forgiven. Now let's approach the table. Men, would you come and help